when I read Cicero's letters about his own experiences with grief, they really resonated with my own experiences with grief. And I just, I think it's cool that that hasn't changed in so long. Um, I mean, it's sad that people have been suffering for that long, but it's also comforting to know that it's something, it's a human feeling and a human emotion. This is The Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. There are a lot of things that people uphold as being traditions or um, being valuable of what society ought to look like. And I think studying Greek Roman studies at Vassar has kind of helped me to question those things and realize that maybe those things really aren't that um, valuable and that I should be more critical and question those things that people have told me I ought to uphold as valuable. Today on The Mirror of Antiquity, interviews with seven students who graduated from Vassar College last spring. Some of them majored in Greek and Roman studies. Others majored in other subjects. But all of them found that a knowledge of antiquity enriched their understanding of the world and their lives. Like the history major, whose Latin classes attuned him to how translations mediate our access to the past. I remember listening to this podcast about this one poem that this guy asked like everyone in the world to translate, and he got back for every person a different translation of this poem. And each one sort of changes the meaning and changes the interesting aspects to it. And to me, I think that's really a thing to notice about the world, about how much translation um, fits into everything. Another student's work on an archaeological dig made her notice how our narratives about the past shape the way we experience a trip to a museum. People love to, like, construct their own narrative. Like, when you walk into a historic house museum, it's been, like, laid out in this one particular way, and it's probably not how it looks when people actually live there. But it's set up to show some kind of thing, um, and the people that come through the museum will start making up some sort of story where they're like, oh, and this is the chair she sat in, I bet, and, like, maybe this happened here, and, oh, look, there's this, and so maybe while she was sitting in the chair, she would do something like this. Um, so I feel like there's this kind of tendency to come up with your own story if there isn't one even that's being presented to you. We should never underestimate the power of such stories. Whoever gets to tell these stories has a lot of power. And if they're telling a story about you, they have a lot of power over how you see yourself, unless you can figure out a way to work against it. I definitely still find empowerment in looking at female characters who are written by men because in today's media, everything's written by men. So you're looking at all of these images and ideals that are being forced upon you and you can learn to pull apart these narratives and find empowerment in them in the ancient world and use that to find empowerment in your own world. The stories we tell about the past can even determine which cultures and civilizations are considered valuable and which aren't and they can create divisions that can seem almost impossible to heal. Persia and so many other countries had a lot of involvement in what was shown at these World's Fairs. But then again, they were kind of shown as part of the past leading up to, you know, France's great present and future. I think at the time, at least, you got a sense of legitimacy for a government, but also for a culture in general by participating at the World's Fairs, by entering, you know, Western civilization in, in all capital letters. But then again, you, you, they did have to kind of submit to, to kind of the language of culture that was, that was being spoken at the time. And if the language of culture that Greco-Roman antiquity is usually associated with starts to become unappealing, what do you do? 
I was so embarrassed. I <laughs> I sent a Snapchat to a lot of people asking if, because I talked about Plato's cave, if that made me a philosophy bro. <laughs> Whatever their perspective, all the voices you'll hear reflect what it is to study the Greco-Roman world in the 21st century. Recognizing aspects of human life and thought that seem not to have changed much in two millennia, while at the same time coming to grips with the unbridgeable gulf between us and that lost world that has so often been presented as if it were simply the origin or foundation of ours. Welcome. My name is Jake Teradin. I'm a Greek and Roman studies and history double major. An interesting kind of theme that kept coming up throughout all the classes was translation. And not simply just like how, you know, we read a text and we sort of translate it into our language, but just sort of how these texts have changed over time and how we kind of understand them. And so in a lot of my Latin classes, we've been reading these uh, we've been reading these texts and we've been translating them, and even in classes that aren't related necessarily to Latin, but just sort of the sort of cultural classes in general, those have also been a lot of focus on like these small texts and translating each word so precisely because you need to be able to tease out the most meaning from them. And I don't know, I think that's, it's helped me notice that a lot more in every day about how much things are translated between people and how much effort needs to be put into translating things and how much meaning can be lost between uh, different cultures. For example, when I was, I've been working on a recent paper in medieval science, this is the travel journal of a man named Friar William of Rubruck. I think it's originally written in Latin. Um, and so he's, he's heading out east to convert the people. And so his first step of his journey is going into northern Russia and he's staying with the Tatars who live there, who are kind of um, Mongolian semi-nomadic people. And they said, you know, they greeted me and they had me drink Cosmos. Like, we drink Cosmos. Um, and then he drinks them all the time there um, among them and they sort of celebrating it while he's telling all about, like, their culture. And I was like, what do you mean drinking Cosmos? This is the medieval times. What's a Cosmo? I burst out laughing and showed it to my friends. I always imagine sex in the city, like the the, the four people sitting out there drinking, um, talking about the metropolitan life and, like, their cultured life. And, you know, high culture, fancy, going to soirees, talking about, um, I don't know, hiding your taxes in the Bahamas. Um, and so, you know, that kind of association when you read the word Cosmo um, compared to what this actually was. And this actually, author, I, I appreciate it. He had a gigantic footnote about why he translated it as Cosmo. When you read, the, when you read like his, his footnote, it explains what this actually was, was a ceremonial drink um, that they handed out to visitors. And this was not very. This was not like a particularly fancy thing. They had it all the time, and essentially, it was just um, a mixture of a bunch of different like liquids and alcohols that they had. It's meant to be like a combination of a bunch of different drinks. It makes sense, but in translation, it reads like they're drinking like these sort of like fancy drinks at a cocktail party. Um, and so it's this. It's a bizarre circumstance to. Um, to, to someone who's not going to read the footnote, when you kind of sort of just take these words at face value, they just kind of turn into um, words that you understand, but it's not actually what that means. And then you don't understand how the culture works and you don't understand what you're even writing about because you're sort of basing this on your own assumptions. And it gives you such a small picture of these cultures when you're just kind of reading what people have translated for you at face value. But if I just read that online without the gigantic footnote he wrote about it, I'd have no idea what he was talking about. I mean, read the footnotes, kids. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, I cannot translate all these different languages, right? I have to rely on translations. But I think at least being able to notice them and being able to 
dig deeper and say, why do you translate that? And so, you know, I guess it's a, it's tuned my brain to kind of look at these individual moments and these individual um, words. I see something translated and I'm like, I noticed that. That one word is interesting. It's an interesting way of um, uh, thinking about it, an interesting way of trying to get back to those moments and trying to sort of connect in some way to antiquity. That's one way of describing what historians try to do. You try to find some way to connect with this ancient past that is so far away and often hidden behind a cloudy veil of translation and other factors that make it hard for us to claim we can look directly at it and know how things were. And this is true even when you can hold in your hand the same object that some ancient person held, a coin, a toga hook, a piece of pottery. Archaeologists, too, have to reckon with how difficult it is to know if their view of the past is of something real, or is every bit as constructed as a literary translation. My name is Kelly Bernatsky. I'm an anthropology major, and I'm minoring in Greek and Roman studies and also education. I came to Vassar, and I thought I was originally going to be a chemistry major or some kind of science major, yeah, (laughs) Um, because I just always liked the structure that comes with science. I also liked history and the narrative of history, and so that's kind of how I came to anthropology because I find that it has both science in it in some ways and history in it in other ways. Um, And so eventually that led me to being interested in museum studies, which I think kind of brings everything together um, because it requires you to take care of artifacts and sort things and catalog things. But it's also about the narrative that you're presenting and how you're teaching people. I ended up applying to do a dig in the summer in Italy and I ended up getting it. So that first summer I worked in Italy, in really the middle of nowhere, central Italy. And it was on a Roman villa. And then the next summer, I did something very different. And I worked with a professor in anthropology at the home of FDR in Hyde Park. Um, I actually, we just finished the project yesterday. So I've been working on it since the summer of my sophomore year. Even the way that archaeology is done, like the methods of it are very different, which I didn't realize at the time, but the like way that we were working in the villa was very confined by the the actual space of what it had been. So we were working like within the walls of this kitchen. So the walls were our, really our boundaries for the site. Um, whereas the FDR site, you do like analysis to pick this spot, but it feels kind of random. And then you just measure out like a one by one square in this case, and then you just dig straight down. So it's really just like a different way of doing things. Um, so that was one major difference. Um, but then, of course, the, the artifacts and what we were actually finding was just very different. Um, in Italy, the professor that we were working with would lecture us about different types of pottery. Coins were the like coolest thing that you could find there. Um, so everyone was always hoping to find a coin. I never actually found one, which was sad. Um, it was like a running joke. Um, but I found a toga hook, which is cool. I thought it was cool, (laughs) Um, but mostly what we were finding was pieces of pottery and this Italian sigillata and other kinds of uh, pot sherds just did not matter. Sometimes there were certain kinds of pottery was more dateable, so that was, like, exciting because once you found it, you knew that that strat had to be, like, after a certain time period, Um, but a lot of it was just burnt cookingware kind of stuff because we were in a kitchen and 
sometimes you can figure out the shape of the vessel, but if it's too small, you can't really. Um, although we did find um, whole vessels near the bottom that were unbroken, which was cool. Um, so, And I mean, that's still the case with some of the stuff that we find today. The most comparable thing is we found a lot of pieces of flower pots, like so it was also terracotta, and it looked kind of similar to what I was finding in Italy. And again, it was just like, okay, more flower pot, like count it, weigh it, whatever, label it. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, the same way that it was treated there. I feel like most of the time you need some kind of decoration or words or some shape, something to go off of. Um, which you, we did find in some artifacts, but not maybe the majority. And when I was here in the summer, um, and mostly what we were finding was like bottles and things that dated all the way up to the 1960s. But I still, you know, found it exciting <laughs> to, regardless of what we were digging up, I guess, which I think is something that you need to have when you're doing archaeology um, because most people expect it to be really cool and exciting and that you're finding like hidden treasure, um, really valuable stuff. But uh, in Italy, most of what we were finding is just broken pieces of pots. Um, and here, what we were finding is mostly broken pieces of metal containers that you couldn't tell what they were anymore. But yeah, I just think maybe it's not exciting to collect more and more pieces of metal, but it is exciting to see that you can find something out from such a small piece of something um so you could have like a piece of broken glass and it has some writing on it it's a little imprinted with something um and then when you come back to the lab um you can find out exactly what bottle it was and when it was made and sometimes it's really cool it's from poughkeepsie or something like that and it's, it shows some kind of local history so i think it's exciting how much information there is if you know how to look for it. You know, I say that I did archaeology at the home of FTR, and um, what I actually did is not what people imagine. Um, so then I'm like, oh, actually, it was like miles and miles away from his house. It was out in the woods, and we had to walk through the woods to get there. Um, but all around were bottles, just like all over the surface. It was actually a trash site, like a, a bottle dump is what we called it, but it was just really just a pile of trash, um, which in Italy, there's also one that we thought was, that we called it trash pit, and it was in the middle of our two sites. I mean, excavating trash is something that archaeologists do all over. So the example that my professor would talk about sometimes with the FDR is like, oh, if this is FDR's trash, you could find something about the products that he used, and then look historically and see what products he said he used or said he didn't use, and then if this is his trash does that actually reflect um what was said versus what was used which is kind of interesting I mean that's definitely something that we thought about while we were doing digging at this site um so the site we were digging at as I said was very far away and it probably wasn't actually related to FDR is what we discovered anyway so it was probably like tenants or other people that lived on the land and it was their trash but still when we'd find a wine bottle we'd be like oh look this is FDR's wine bottle and we're like we know it's not um and it's probably not related to him at all but this kind of narrative of like tying it to something bigger or trying to find some kind of story in it was definitely still something one of the things we did was actually take the tour of the FDR home um and in doing that you know what we learned about felt not very relevant at all to what we were digging even though it was on the same property so it kind of brought attention to 
what stories are being told in this tour and in the home of FDR and what narratives have gotten lost, which are that of these tenant farmers that lived on the property at the same time, maybe. In fact, there's like a big map on the floor um, in the lobby of the first building you go in. And on the map, you can go look for where our site was and it's just a bunch of trees. Like it's not labeled as anything. It's just kind of this mysterious why is this part of the property land? Like how expansive the property actually is. Um, and the people that lived on it that we, like we don't actually know who this trash belongs to now. They've kind of been lost in the uh, historical record. So I guess um, going on the tour revealed something about the museum and the story that they were telling there and the stories that maybe people don't think are as interesting to tell and kind of the more mundane everyday life stuff that gets left behind. Kelly's story about visiting the FDR Museum makes me wonder about the map we have of classical antiquity. And I don't just mean a map of the lands around the ancient Mediterranean Sea. I mean the conceptual map of all the subjects we study as classical scholars, whether literary, artistic, political, archaeological. Where on that map is there a big bunch of trees in a place where no one has thought to look, covering up stories that aren't being told because they haven't been considered important enough to tell? And another question, where do those maps come from? Who makes them? I'm Noah Purdy, an art history major and Greek and Roman studies and French and Francophone studies correlate. My thesis was about the views of Persian art in late 19th century France. Persepolis was kind of the hot ticket of, of archaeology at the time period, and it was kind of just starting to be re-excavated in the late 19th century. Um, and I think it was kind of viewed in the same way as the Parthenon or, you know, maybe the Forum, and set up as kind of like the predecessor for all the great empires and kings of Persia throughout time periods that weren't even connected to, you know, the empires that, that built Persepolis. It was kind of the beginning of the study of Persian art as its own field of study in, in art history. So a lot of them were, a lot of the interest was kind of in decorative art, but also France gained sole access to archaeology within Iran. So there was kind of a, a lot of conflation of medieval, ancient, and, and modern Persian art. I talked about Persian art at the um, World's Fairs in Paris. The World's Fairs are kind of this endlessly fascinating topic. There's, there was so much going on. You know, there's everything from advents in electricity to human zoos, so kind of like the highs and lows of culture all at once. So there's these fascinating sites. But Persia was kind of, for the first time, involved in these French and these European views of global culture, however you mean that phrase. You had artifacts sent back from digs that were going on at the time period. Just like two rooms of objects that didn't, that weren't necessarily related to each other from the same time period, you were supposed to understand a whole culture's history that goes back thousands of years. So it was interesting to study the choices they made, but also kind of the random objects that happened to be sent over or bought that decade and how that influenced how people read a whole different culture. There were people, like actual humans, dressed in ancient armor. There were a lot of pottery and ceramics, a lot of faux antique architecture, this whole mishmash of kind of antiquity and 
the Middle Ages, which are set up as like the pinnacles of Persian of the Persian empires put into one and kind of read against this huge panorama of the whole globe, ostensibly. <laughs> so on the one hand, you have a narrative written by the host country, which is France in this case, but also kind of a narrative shown and told by Persian objects, by, you know, governments and scholars alike. Persia was kind of this catch-all for every, you know, luxurious Eastern, Middle Eastern culture. I think it was, you know, exoticizing. You had, like, dancers and musicians that were kind of seeking a sense of authenticity. And it's kind of reducing cultures to ideals of, like, like hyper-femininity, sexualization, hyper-refinement in a pejorative sense, and basically imposing these views instead of actually understanding the cultures and the aesthetics um, in question through their own languages and through their own values. I think the rich history of, of digging and decoding Greek art kind of colored every interaction with, with ancient art at the time period. So you'd see French scholars relentlessly comparing Persian art to Greek art to Roman art. When I think when your basis of knowledge is the Greek orders and the Parthenon architecture is kind of your your ideal, everything is kind of set and read against those ideals instead of kind of their own past and their own histories. So you place value judgments on on things that you've never seen before, things that you don't understand, just because you've set up another thing that you claim to understand or claim as your own. Um, as superior. So I think in a sense, Greece and Rome are kind of seen as almost apolitical in a way, because they're kind of seen as this pure um, source or this pure lens into the past, whereas other cultures can be seen as, you know, decadent or, or like reduced by their complicated modern histories. You know, we study Greece and Rome through their own text, through their own, basically their own lenses, their own voices, their own artworks thinking of like Herodotus's interactions with Persia it was seen as like the height of despotism and luxury at the same time and I think in some ways many people see Iran as like evil or despotic in similar ways thinking about the study of non-Western cultures in relation to the study of Greek and Roman cultures has made me think a lot about why we don't see Greece and Rome as so foreign as these other peoples. I think in the U.S. as inheritors of largely European cultures, like the dominant narrative is that is that Western civilization was built from the Greeks to the Romans and passed on, you know, through time. But essentially the Greeks were this sophisticated and refined, of course, but this tribe in the Mediterranean that happened to be very well documented or happened to have their documents survive very well compared to others. And so it's kind of funny how we view this just because we can read their texts better than other people's or they seem very familiar because they have names and personalities that we see them as, you know, our ancestors more than other, other ancient peoples who were doing interesting things at the same times. When we view Greco-Roman antiquity as the pinnacle of civilization, and measure other cultures against the same standards we used to decide it was the pinnacle, whether or not those standards are relevant to the culture we are measuring. We perpetuate a narrative of difference that lurks behind so many of the international political conflicts of our day. It's one of the dangers of admiring Greco-Roman antiquity too uncritically. That admiration for antiquity 
is at the heart of how classics has usually been taught and justified. So much that it can be hard to see any other way to do it. But the ancients themselves didn't necessarily have this glorified view of their own classical past. They could question its prestige. They could even make fun of it. Why can't we? My name is Gray Alexander. I'm a senior Greek Roman studies major. I, I came here thinking a lot about how Latin is valuable because of its contribution to Western civilization, about how important and like crucial knowing Latin is to understanding everything about the world around us. But the book I'm writing my thesis on, The True Histories, is challenging that and thinking about why do we privilege these texts over others and what makes them privileged, not necessarily like their own value. It's a second century Greek science fiction novel written by Lucian in the vein of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So very tongue in cheek, uh, very funny, not so much like War, War of the World sci-fi. It's a voyage novel. I guess the originator is the Odyssey, obviously. So Lucian takes everything to like extremes. He sails out past the Pillars of Hercules and almost immediately gets swept up into a storm that lifts up his boat and carries it up to the moon, where the people who live on the moon are making war with the people who live on the sun. And so... He helps the people on the moon who then lose the people on the sun in a very Peloponnesian fashion. <laughs> um, and so then the, the rest of the story is him returning to the sea on his boat and then sailing, sailing to find the end of the world. And in the process, he gets swallowed by a giant whale where inside there's this island with all different types of people. So when he's in the whale, there's a lot of confusion over whether they're alive or dead in the whale. And so the main intertext operating inside the whale is Plato's cave, where the only time the people in the whale can see what's around them is when the whale opens its mouth and then casts shadows into it through the sun. But then as the men become discontented with their life inside the whale, they decide to leave the whale. And as they're leaving the whale, the intertext shifts from the, from the cave to Odysseus escaping the Cyclops' cave. And so in taking the illusions from the cave um, and then transitioning to the Odyssey, Lucian, he's going above and beyond what Plato and Homer did because not only is he escaping the cave, but he's also escaping with all of his men because in Odysseus's cave, his men keep dying <laughs> because of his own arrogance and poor leadership skills. But Lucian is able to bring all of his crew with him and show that his, his leadership is more effective than Odysseus's. But, and to illustrate the absurdity of everything he did, he frames Odysseus's escape from the cave within an escape from a whale. And then like Plato's seriousness about the cave is then manipulated in the whale. What I've really appreciated about it is it doesn't take itself seriously because I took it too seriously. Like I, t I took Latin and Greek too seriously. Um, like I, I really very much uh, before I got to Vassar fell for the, these things are intrinsically valuable. Um, and so when Lucian talks about in his prologue that 
he's better than all these other authors because he's lying and saying he's lying, whereas they lied and said they weren't lying. It resonated with me because like, it really challenged this, the, the premise we give to these classical texts. And what I loved about it was it showed that ancient people didn't take themselves too seriously. Like reading Lucian really humanized ancient people <laughs> because I got to see I got to see a sense of humor that I ne- hadn't necessarily experienced before. Like, I guess there, there are certainly comedies that survive, but the, there's this whole book. It's just like a, almost like a, a Stephen Colbert kind of book, you know, where it's, the, the way it develops its themes is through parody um, rather than seriousness, finally. Like, I can just enjoy reading it for the sake of enjoying reading it, not because of some, like, intrinsic value it offers. And that my, my desire to work with people about Latin and Greek is to help them read it, but then also to, like, get them thinking about unprivileging classics the way that it took me until college to do. And so kind of to build that into their high school curriculum in a way that it wasn't necessarily built into mine. I think some people are worried that if we unprivilege classics, if we question whether ancient literature or culture or whatever is really admirable, then Greco-Roman antiquity will stop being significant and maybe will stop being studied. But in fact, sometimes we can find deep significance in questioning what is usually not questioned in asking whether the things we give authority to deserve that authority, and in wondering what we might discover about the past or ourselves if we ask those questions. So my name is Leah Clark. I'm a Greek and Roman studies major. I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I'm going to get my master's in school counseling after I graduate Vassar. Yeah, I think like the traditional ways of studying antiquity, they find value in ancient Greece or ancient Rome for whatever reason they decided that this is culture, this is what it should look like if it's to be valued. But being in the department, I've realized that that value doesn't always come from what someone else has said, that I can find value in the ancient world for whatever. I want to find value in it, and I can also find value um, and other things that have formulated who I am and other things that I've come across. And so using that perspective, I could help students um, find value in themselves rather than relying on societal expectations or their family expectations or other external expectations of value and self-worth. I wanted to get away from Alabama for college, for sure. Um, and not not because I hated Alabama or anything. I just wanted to to put myself in a new position where I was challenging myself. But then by doing that, I was like physically removed from my family, like over a thousand miles away from my family. Um, And I don't come from the most high income family in the world. Like they definitely have their struggles. And so sometimes I would feel guilty that I wasn't there to work, that instead I chose my own education and my own personal goals when I maybe, you know, I could have stayed back and worked and provided for them more. Um, So trying to balance that and like, of course, my parents don't want me to feel guilty. They want me to go off and do what I want to do. But still, that societal expectation to provide for your families there. My thesis is about the Odyssey um, and how it relates to this movie, Yuli's Gold, and um, the veterans coming home process and what it means to come home when that home is no longer what you thought it was be- would be. And so you get home and you had this idea of what it is and what you thought it was be when you left, and then it's no longer that perfect, idyllic place. So Yuli's Gold was a movie um, written and directed by Victor Nunez, um, in the late 90s, it stars Peter Fonda as Yuli Jackson. He's a Vietnam vet. He's been home for 20 years, but he still has those mental roadblocks. And so he hasn't quite 
fully reintegrated with his home. So whereas Odysseus, most of his journey is this physical return home, and it hints at this upcoming process of the emotional reconnection with his family, Yuli is fully in that emotional reconnecting phase of his journey home. And he's still trying to figure it out, even though it's like years later. Um, There's a sense of guilt and shame from his experiences in Vietnam. They talk a lot about um, Southern ideals of manhood and what was expected of a Southern man. He was so like not happy about his time in Vietnam. I kind of saw him as wanting to uh, embody these Southern ideals of manhood, to be a provider for his family, to be independent, to be hardworking, to be that foundation, to be emotionally withdrawn and to extent so that he's this composed, I guess, stoic kind of individual. But by doing that, by trying to to hold on to those values, he further prevents himself because he's not opening up, because he's not looking toward others for help. He he like keeps cutting himself away from his family when all he really wants to do is get closer to them. And then toward the end of the movie, he he realizes those standards are exactly what's preventing him from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. And so he has to find bits of those standards that he does find value and then also do away with the ones that aren't valuing him anymore and find this new form of what it means to be a man for his family. I think Odysseus is doing a similar thing. Rather than getting value from battle, he's having to find value within himself. Odysseus is away for 10 years in Troy and then 10 years journeying home to Ithaca. And he definitely wants to get back home. But once he gets home, there's the suitors he has to deal with. His son's now a young man. All the dynamics have completely changed. And so it's no longer the home that he had left. There's no way it could be the same home that it was 20 years ago. And then even once he gets home, the journey doesn't end for him. He still has to go off and bury the ore to uh, please Poseidon. He has to deal with all the um, goods that the suitors used up. So he thinks he's coming home. And like like what I thought of the Odyssey when I first like had heard about it and whatnot before I'd actually read it, it's this like perfect journey. He gets home, everybody's happy, and then that happy ending just isn't there. And so that's kind of the things that the the Odyssey explores is how to find that value in yourself when the thing that you've always turned to for value is no longer applicable. So I definitely think that can be challenging in Alabama where there's always those traditional mindsets of what students have to do once they grow up. They need to provide for their family. They need to get a job. And sometimes what they want to do and what society is telling them to do don't align. So like if a student came into my office and they told me they want to go to California for college and they have all these dreams that they want to achieve, um, but they feel that they can't because they need to stay at, um, at home, I think I can help that student to say, you know what, just because someone said this is what you have to do, you can question that. You can be critical of that. Sometimes society has ideas and it's okay to like look toward that, but then it's also good to question that and like why is this thing being valued? And maybe during your further investigation, you realize why it's being valued and maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't. So kind of rather than just blindly accepting what is expected of you, questioning it and then figuring out if that is truly what you expect for yourself. And so I've been kind of thinking about my own odyssey back home that it's definitely going to be different because I'm so much different than I was when I left there. Um, so no matter how similar I want it to be or how familiar that like I want it to be, there's no way it's going to be the exact same. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see how I'm going to readjust back to that, knowing what I know now and having a, this more critical eye. Um, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a different world um, coming home. And then you're going to have to take everything that you've learned, all your new experiences, and bring them back home. I know one of the struggles for me 
I always felt like I have my Vassar life and I have my Alabama life and they, they don't ever intersect. And so it's definitely hard coming home and trying to, to be this new person that I became and grew into while I was at Vassar while still going home and still being that Alabama Leah that I grew up to be and trying to reconcile those two things. It, it can be challenging, but I think it would be so rewarding once they finally come together. I don't know. I think it's so cool to see like a kid achieve what they want to achieve and like see their dreams all the way through. We are all on journeys in life. None of us really knows what is coming next, and amid such uncertainty, it can be helpful to have a model to look to. Leah is going home after four years away, and Odysseus helps her prepare for the experience of returning as a different person to a place that in some ways will be the same, but in other ways will be different, because she's different. She's going back as boldly as Odysseus did, with the same ability to hold a multiplicity of selves in one person. But what about the stages of our journey that are marked not by boldness and growth, but by pain and loss? We so often think of the ancients as great philosophers, artists, politicians, or heroes. But they were human beings. They suffered too. Hello, I'm Olivia Martin. I'm a Cancer, zodiac sign. I'm a poli-sci and Greek-German studies major. Um, 22. I'm from Northern Virginia. I have two dogs, Champagne Poppy and Reese. Champagne Poppy is Drake's Instagram name. We just call him Poppy, though. Poppy was an attempt to cure my depression, so interesting move on my mom's part. But I got a dog out of it. I started writing my thesis about grief in ancient Rome because I wanted to see if people felt the same way. Cicero's letters to Atticus and um, letters exchanged between him and Servius um, are really interesting, and that's those are some of the ones I found most reflective of my own experience. Uh, well, his daughter Tulia, 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 passed away I think in 45 BC, um, and he just he wrote a lot of letters to his friends, um, mainly Atticus, just about not being able to like get out of bed basically, and he just stayed out of the public eye and just felt like so crushed and so hopeless, and it was a really bad time for him because he also couldn't divert his energies into you know government work because he had been exiled at that point and like wasn't part of the government, so he had no you know public career, and um, they had a really wonderful relationship. It sounds like he really respected her and loved her, so it's, it's very sad. There's just a, this whole thread of him of, of of her being his one consolation throughout all the republic falling apart is is notable in all his letters. I've read Seneca's On Consolation pieces, and there's one that stuck out to me a lot where he addresses a kind of like aristocratic woman named um, Marcia, and she had lost her son, and kind of the same deal as Cicero. She just really retreated from the public eye. It was It's sad to read about, I mean, but it, it people have been doing the same stuff for thousands of years, and grief has been affecting people the same way. So I just think that's interesting. But my own grief. Um, I lost my father when I was seven. Um, it was very hard and very traumatic. And I don't think that you ever totally get over something like that. It just, it, it definitely gets a lot easier throughout the years, obviously. Um, but it's still a painful subject. It's hard to remember now a lot of it actually, because I was so young, it feels like a blur. But I I did have a really wonderful relationship with my dad, and he was very comforting. I had to grow up pretty fast because as soon as my dad died, my mom went back to work full time, and um, I had to kind of take care of myself. Um, like I, I would just, I would make my own meals. I would get to soccer practice on my own and stuff like that. So I guess there was an expectation that I, that I kind of like take control of of my own life in some ways. But um, 
My mom was pretty good about letting me be sad, I guess. I just felt very angry, I guess, when I was grieving, and I definitely retreated from, like, I don't know, social things, and I just, I always felt very alone, but I made myself very alone, too. Um, I I didn't want to be around people, and I, I felt like people didn't understand what I was going through, um, which is not necessarily true, but I think that's just, like, a natural human thing to do, is to feel that, like, you're the only one suffering in this way, which... If my thesis has shown anything, it's that everyone feels that way at some point or another in their life. Unless you're just, like, really good at handling grief, which is, I don't know anyone that's that good um, that could live up to the standard that they kind of talk about in these letters. Um, I don't think it's possible, really. Everyone seems to have, like, a pretty stoic philosophy in regards to grief, like even Cicero. The way he approached grief specifically was, like, when he's writing to his friends who are suffering from grief, at least, he's just, like, you know, uh, death is inevitable. There's no point in mourning. Um, you should just move on. Um, so it, it was a pretty unhealthy way to deal with grief, basically, because like any sign of emotion in the public eye, at least, was um, seen as wrong or, you know, betraying some kind of inner failure, inner effeminacy, if you will. When he writes to his friends, there's this one specific letter to Brutus, who was a um, Roman general. His wife, I think her name is Portia, committed suicide. And uh, Cicero wrote him this letter, which was like, you will be a failure, basically, if you show any signs of emotion, because the world is looking up to you right now. And if you show any signs of sadness or grief, if you betray any kind of feeling like that, then you effectively will have failed all of us. At the same time, when, you know, when Tulia died, Cicero was just completely, like, grief-stricken, you know, didn't leave his house for a long time. And um, there's so many letters of his friends being like, you know, where are you? Like, everyone's asking about you. Like, everyone around town is wondering where you are. And he's like... I'm just so sad, I can't leave my house, basically. So he was kind of a hypocrite. Well, not even kind of, he was. I think it's important to call him a hypocrite, actually, because I think that proves that the standard that they were holding men up to is ludicrous. Because you can't just, if your wife dies, how are you not going to feel emotions, you know? And I think that even if if you somehow are able to, like, achieve a degree of self-mastery where you don't feel anything, I don't think that's healthy or should be promoted. So I think it's important to call him a hypocrite and say that, look, like, your own experience says that that doesn't work. So why are you pushing this onto other men? Um, So I think it says that the standard that they held people to was pretty ludicrous and unattainable at the end of the day. I mean, I I think I ended up trying to fit to a stoic mold because I just needed to get through each day. And so that kind of looked like me repressing emotion for a long time. That's why when I look at these people trying to bottle up their emotions and and not feel anything, I've I've tried that and it doesn't work. I mean, it's just like the problem just buries itself deeper inside you. And um, it it takes a long time to get it out if you do that. Um, A lot of years of therapy. And Seneca's on writing too, like he's like, there's been times where I've just been lost in grief. But but here's what you should do, which is just completely move on. And, you know, actually, they placed it in a, in a pretty big importance on, like, remembrance and keeping the memory of the dead alive. But at the same time, you're supposed to kind of just, like, bury the kid and then the next day get back to work. There's actually several examples in his On Consolation letters of what men or even women. Livia did that, apparently, with her son, Drusus. Um, she just kind of, like, got back to work the next day, and that was kind of the gold standard. I think it's a dangerous precedent. Maybe dangerous is too strong of a word. But I mean, I think you kind of see that today, and especially in men and and their grief and their emotions. That stoic philosophy is, is I feel, still like a, a big part of the way men think about emotions. Like, you know, don't cry, don't show how you're feeling. And I think that that can, at the at its worst, that can lead to really, really horrible things. And, and groups like incels or, you know, the red pill forums, those are people that feel like they can't express any emotion because of like kind of the gendered standards we have um, regarding emotion and expression of emotion. And so I, I think that by being more welcoming and accepting of how people are feeling, 
we could do a lot of good work for you know, Western society as a whole, I guess. I'm trying to think if I learned anything productive about grief from doing this whole thesis. I feel like there was something I should have learned, but I guess all I learned is grief sucks. And like, you just, there's there's no easy cure-all. And in a lot of these letters, they talk about how time is like the only medicine, really. And I think that that's true. And I think that there's no point in bottling things up and just, you know, trying to perform for other people socially while you're grieving, if that makes sense. On the face of it, it may be surprising that Olivia, a 22-year-old woman at Vassar College, would find any connection at all with men like Cicero or Seneca. She got a glimpse of a woman who retreated into grief in Marcia, to whom Seneca wrote a letter of consolation after her son died. But Seneca expresses hardly any empathy for her in that letter, leaving the impression that Marcia grieved alone and unsupported. And the other woman Olivia examined, Augustus's wife, Livia, supposedly didn't even grieve when her son died. These aren't examples to follow. They say more about how not to grieve. But as so often, we don't know much about Marcia, or Livia for that matter, except what men said about them. If Olivia had to look to Cicero and Seneca, it was because it's just so hard to find out about women and their experiences from the sources we have. It's hard, but it can be done. And sometimes you can find a source of empowerment and confidence where you least expect it. I'm Kaylee McRobert. I was actually planning to write my thesis on Lavinia in the Aeneid because she bothered me so much, where she's in some ways one of the most important characters in that story. There's a whole war about her, but she doesn't have a single line. She just has one place where she blushes. And it bothered me so much that she's so pivotal. She's kind of the Aeneid's version of Helen, and yet she has none of her own narrative. Lavinia is the uh, final wife of Aeneas in Virgil's Aeneid, where he has lost his first wife and gone on this great voyage to found Rome. And it's his destiny to marry this woman, Lavinia. And because of this, he starts a whole war with her other suitor to marry her and to become the next leader of the Latins. And kind of the reason why I didn't write a thesis on that was I realized that the reason she had no character and no story is that that's what ancient women were being told to be. They were actually being told to be quiet and be there to have things happen around them, like Lavinia. There's a reason that Lavinia and Creusa stand out so differently from women like Medea and Dido and Camilla and all of these women who are not what Roman women are supposed to be. You see some of the stereotypes of what women were supposed to be. You see some of the stereotypes of what women definitely were not supposed to be. You get some of the outside perspectives of what could be wrong with a strong woman. And it's really fun to, well, it's just fun to see a woman who's talked about in antiquity. I mean, I grew up with the narrative of the maiden in the castle who gets saved by the man. And like, we used to play games where, when I was in elementary school, where the boys would go out with their sticks and they'd fight and the girls would sit in the swing set and wait for them. And <laughs> it really, affects kind of how you think of yourself and how you grow up in this world and think of how you interact with the world and other people. In modern media, you 
it's always the white male protagonist. And if a woman is smart, then she's also annoying. Or if she's really tough, then she's also too tough and insecure. So it's, there's something so deeply moving about seeing these women who have their own thoughts. Even if women were being pushed on this Lavinia narrative, there's still other places that they can find themselves in, like Medea, Camilla, um, Dido. They still there's still something that can be pulled out of that that's not as awful. Women like Medea who are problematic but also can leave Jason when he's being abusive, even if you get the Herodes where she's then falling apart and he's still affecting her. But also that's what happens when you leave someone who's abusive. So I can look at Medea and say, yeah, you can have a voice. There's nothing wrong with that. And you shouldn't be vilified. And what you're doing is still pretty cool. Maybe not the murdering people, but the taking charge of her own life part. There's there's so little where women are told, like, yes, you can lead this. You have the skills to do this. It's men who get to do everything and women who get to kind of be a periphery character and a supporting character. Dido is the original leader who's a woman. She has the perfect society of Carthage in that, you know, it fits the Roman ideal that bees are the perfect society, um, which is always funny to me because bees actually do have a queen while the Romans thought they had a king. Uh, (laughs) But Dido is just, she is so awesome in every way. She got away from an abusive husband. She started her own life. She negotiated successfully with men who looked down on her and who tried to belittle and take away her power. And she did something amazing with it and was so successful. And I definitely don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that her circumstances then tore her apart with the love spell and the gods against her because it took all of the gods against her to take her down. And that's pretty cool. Camilla was this strong female warrior who fought for the Latins against Aeneas and the Trojans in the war over Lavinia. And she was killing dozens and dozens and dozens of Trojans. And she was one of the strongest warriors on their the Latin side and Camilla's cool because she's she's a female warrior and you never get to see that except for you know the Amazons who also deform themselves and are this weird foreign race but she's straight out a at-home woman who the Romans can look to as like part of their heritage and it's just so cool to have that and to say this is in my blood and this is we don't need to be some scary foreigner to be able to be strong women. Um, It's cool that there's even the ability to create that narrative. In the end, she gets distracted because she sees a warrior on the other side who wears pants. And because of that, she gets killed. And that's just the end of her. And that always just seems so silly. (laughs) The death of Camilla was so written by a man (laughs) in that... You build up this huge, amazing female character, and then you say, oh, but pants, that can take her down. Just fashion, seeing fashion can be distracting enough for this strong, impressive woman to take her down. But 
I think if if you look at women around you who start to have that strength, there's not something that simple and that out of character for them that's just going to pull them down because it's a female stereotype. Learning classics and learning how to start seeing how these narratives were being told to women and how it affected their behavior and kind of the way society told them to be allows you to start tearing that apart in your own life and seeing the ways in which, wow, being told all of these stories as a child was problematic and also very effective. And it allows me to start seeing the parts of myself that really reflect that upbringing and the parts of the people around me that really reflect these stories that were being told. It starts to help you see that maybe some of the things where you're too nervous to speak up in a room full of people where there's a lot of men around you or where you feel like you shouldn't, it's not your place to have a say in something, isn't you. It's part of your surrounding world. So you can say, okay, you know what? I'm just, I know that I'm going to walk into this film and the men are going to get 80% of the lines. The women most of what they're going to talk about is the men. And I'm going to look for what I want out of it. That little bit where this one woman is going to stand up for herself and I'm going to try to pull that out of everything and focus on it and feel good about myself. You can be Lavinia by just keeping your mouth shut, but you, you're not going to feel good. And there's still going to be this internal conflict of okay, I'm acting perfect, I have to keep acting perfect like this, but I don't feel right, is there something wrong with me? Because this is who I'm told to be. But if you start to have these ways of saying, actually, maybe it's okay to have an internal media, then you start to be able to let that sit right with you and start to find empowerment off of that. Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Naomi Zeltzer, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Baynard Bailey is our recording engineer. Emma Schulte designed our logo. Special thanks to all the graduating seniors, both for agreeing to be interviewed for the show, but even more for all the ways you enriched the study of Greco-Roman antiquity during your time at Vassar. We can't wait to see what you do next. If you enjoy hearing from students about how they relate to the ancient past, there's another set of interviews with the previous year's seniors at mirrorofantiquity.com. There you can also find links to information about the archaeological project you heard about at the Franklin Roosevelt Historic Site that's run by my Vassar anthropology colleague April Besaw. And where, of course, you can also find all my interviews with classical scholars about how their research informs their understanding of the contemporary world and their own lives. If you like the show... Tell a friend about it, follow us on social media, or subscribe on iTunes. There's more to come. Thanks a lot for listening.